Ron Chapman is here. The name of the documentary is Revival 69, the concert that rocked the world. Nice to see you, sir. Nice to see you, too. I think inevitably, in, in almost everything I've read about this film, people will say, yes, it's the second most important uh, concert event in the 1960s. So do, does everybody refer to this as Canada's Woodstock? Uh, I don't know. You know, first of all, most people don't know about this concert, so they're not referring it, to it as anything. One of the, the great things about getting this film made is actually getting the story out. Canadians don't know about this film. I, I was at the Whistler Film Festival. There were two uh, full audiences, and the moderator asked people in the audience, who here before has heard of this concert before he came to the film? Two people put up their hands in the first screening, three people in the second screening. This a concert has largely gone unnoticed uh, here in Canada and internationally, unless you're a music industry insider or uh, or you're a, a, a huge Beatles fan. Other than that, nobody knows about it. Okay, well, you are a music industry insider. So how did it, you know, erupt on your radar and when? Uh, it was after I had finished my uh, my other rock talk, Who the F*** is Arthur Fogel, which was about a, a Canadian, again, that nobody knew about in Canada or internationally, one of the most important guys in the music industry. And I had wanted to make that film to, you know, shine a light on on Canada and, and, and somebody who had you know so much influence and power that, again, no one knew about. I saw this as an opportunity to continue making films about Canada that were of international significance. I think so many films that get made in Canada never get beyond its borders. Uh, one of my mandates and passions really is to make films that go beyond the borders that recognize Canada. This story is, you know, arguably one of the most uh, important stories in music history internationally in terms of its place in, in rock history. And certainly in Canada, there's no more important music event than this that's happened on, uh, on Canadian soil. Okay, so set the table for those who are unfamiliar with this concert. It came together in Toronto in front of 20,000 people. Tell us more about it. Well, it was a, uh, a concert where the promoter, John Brower, a 22-year-old renegade promoter, back in the, you know, and again, this was in a time before Live Nations or AEGs or corporate rock or any of that. It was back in, in 1969 when pretty much anything was possible and people who were promoting were just passionate and people who were playing music were just, again, passionate rockers. There was no brands and all of that stuff. Uh, it was just real real rock and roll and real, real music passion. It was a moment when music was evolving. The rock of the uh, late 50s and early 60s was no longer fashionable, and, the, and pop and rock music was uh, changing dramatically. The promoters, John Brower and Ken Walker, decided they wanted to do a, uh, a rock festival after a very successful two-day festival featuring all the new acts that featured the uh, great rockers of what was a bygone era. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Gene Vincent, and Bo Diddley. They had seen Chuck Berry at their last festival, who, who just knocked the audience out, and they figured kids were ready to see the originators of rock, the guys who had created the foundations for the music that they were listening to. They were wrong. They started this festival up. It was in late September, and probably for a variety of reasons, the festival was not selling at all. It was a failure. It looked like it was going to have to get canceled. They added some other artists. They added Chicago, who had a big hit uh, at the time. It had just come out. They added... Alice Cooper, who was pretty much an unknown, he hadn't really, he really was not known on the circuit at all. No real uh, effect on ticket sales, a couple of other artists. Finally, they added The Doors, 
who they hoped would change things. And for reasons which you'll see in the film, the doors didn't make a big difference. The plug was about to be pulled a couple of days before the concert. And Brower was inspired and uh, by Kim Fowley to call up John Lennon and ask him to come out and MC the concert because John had idolized all of these great rockers and they thought maybe he would do that do this now this was about six months after the Beatles had come down off the roof uh, they hadn't you know really played live for three years then John loved playing live uh, he got this call for some, he took the call again one of the the amazing things about this story like who in this day and age is going to phone up one of the greatest rock stars or rap stars or whatever at this time and just get through to them on the phone never happened but 1969 he got through to John Lennon invited him to come and John went hey sure and I'll put a band together. And he, he decided to throw a band together, people he had never played with before, got on a plane two days later with a band he had never played before, went to Toronto and played in front of uh, 25,000 people when they had never actually performed before as a band. That is so rock and roll. That is so the essence of rock and roll, the spirit of rock and roll, that it's you know just stirring. And, and the band he put together was the Plastic Ono Band. It was the first incarnation of that band, the first time they played, and the first time that John Lennon played as a Beatle. And this, the experience, John, who had never played as a front man before, he had never just been a front man, he had always been part of the Beatles, that experience of going and being a front man after all the things he had been doing with Yoko over that time in film and music and performance art, that moment on stage here in Toronto was sort of the final nail in the coffin in terms of giving him the confidence to go out and be John Lennon, quit the Beatles. He got on a plane two days later, went back to London, walked into a meeting at Apple and said, guys, I'm done. I quit. So this is a momentous moment in, in, in rock music history. It's, signifies really the end of the Beatles. And Toronto was the spark that uh, that gave him that final push to, to make that decision. Now, if you're making a documentary, the most important aspect is always going to be you need the footage. So can you take us down the path of where you found footage of this event? D.A. Pennebaker had shot this concert as a concert film. D.A. Pennebaker, uh, one of the most revered yeah. documentarians uh, of our time. He also, like John Lennon, idolized these guys, the rockers. And he said, you know what, I'm going to go film this. It's going to be my biggest, most successful film. And he very quickly put it together, as did John Lennon got some funding and came to Toronto. He shot the entire concert, put out a film, and it was an absolute failure. Nobody was interested. Nobody cared. Uh, it played once or twice, didn't get shown anywhere, and that was it. It bankrupted D.A. Pennebaker. It broke up his partnership with his partner, Leacock. But he basically threw all this stuff in boxes, sent it off to Iron Mountain, where you store uh, footage uh, and stuff like this, want to protect it. And that's where it sat since 1969. I went to Pennebaker, and uh, I, I told him I wanted to make this film and told him uh, I wanted him to come on as an executive producer and have exclusive use of his uh, footage, go back into the vaults. And he came on board as executive producer, along with uh, Chris Hagedis, his wife and partner, as well as Fraser Pennebaker, and, uh, and gave me access. And so I went into those boxes. They came back from Iron Mountain, and they weren't properly cataloged or anything. It was 1969. You know, we went through them, found 60 hours of footage, most of it never before seen, uh, performances never before seen, uh, backstage stuff never before seen. And I went through that and utilized that footage in the making of the film. I also 
doing my research had read about seeing Super 8 cameras, and though they had had Super 8 cameras there, they thought all that footage was lost. We, I kept pushing them and pushing them. They kept checking other boxes in Iron Mountain. Finally, they found two hours of unprocessed Super 8 footage. We processed that, and that also ended up being an important part of the uh, the film and the footage and just gave it a real, uh, you know, you were there kind of feel and look. It was really uh, astounding. And going through the footage, seeing all that stuff, you know, and those performances was, was just an incredible experience. So what do you think the legacy of of this concert is and i think you've touched on aspects of it it just there are certain times where it's almost poetic how things converge and as you've described it it was the old masters the people they had influenced and the people they influenced who were on the precipice of doing something else exactly and it was it was it was really a meeting of the past the present and the future of music it was all three of those converging on on one stage in one day with, with with this performance and it was it was bringing back those guys again and making them relevant and giving them another life you know which they so richly deserved and bringing them back into the culture into a new culture in fact that was being generated by the 60s generation that were coming out the legacy of this there's just the story about what was possible in the 60s you get a behind the scenes look at this at how this thing came together from beginning to end it's something that could never happen in today's world so this film is really a time capsule it takes you back into another time and 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 you're you're living in the time where anything's possible anything can happen uh you know if you have belief and if you have that passion and drive and it's also the legacy of this is really the John and Yoko story because that is so beautiful and it was something I really wanted to uh, to illuminate as best I could in this film. I've always been a huge fan of Yoko's. I think she's an incredible talent. Uh, she was huge in Japan before she came to England and met John. She was renowned as an artist, as a performance artist. Performance art was invisible back in the day. You know, she was vilified uh, because of her relationship with John, because of encouraging him to be more creative and to find his own, you know, inner self and to express that through his art and through their art together. They had the most beautiful relationship, you know, love story, one of the most beautiful love stories of our time. And in this concert, they came out for the first time and played on stage. She did her thing, her performance art. Again, she was vilified for that. But it was a performance. They came and they played for peace. And I really think that they helped refocus that generation and, and, and focus the generation on the importance of peace. His music did that. His legacy did that. And, and his support of her even while people weren't accepting her, she was so far ahead of her time. That performance was so far ahead of its time. That was one of the most magical things that happened, uh, or one of the many magical things that happened at that at that show that I think will uh, will have live on and impact people when they see this film. Thank you very much for this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Great, great talking with you.